You're listening to The Agile CTO, a podcast geared toward technology professionals, disruptors, and thought leaders. This show will aim to cover industry trends, new technologies, the life of a CTO, building dev culture, stories from some of today's leading CTOs, and so much more. If you're looking for conversations centered around where the industry is going, this podcast is for you. Let's get into the show. Hi, and welcome back to The Agile CTO. Today, we've got a returning guest, Dale Williamson. But before we jump into that, how are you, Harley? How are you today? I'm good. Uh, I think I've been, I need to shake off the cobwebs a little bit. It's been yourself and Alan kind of driving for the past couple of episodes. I'm very excited to be back. It's nice to have a familiar face uh, with Dale. But yeah, how are you doing, Guy? No, I'm pretty good. It's Friday um, and it's weekend and it's going to be a chilly, wet weekend. So looking forward to spending time indoors with two toddlers that cannot exert more energy if they tried um so that's going to be real fun trying to control that and sort of keep sane a little bit but we'll see how far we get fantastic yeah. and it's uh if you're listening to this pretty soon after it comes out the 27th today is a very good day for us nerds like myself and guy with uh, both stranger things volume four and obi-wan <laughs> kenobi coming out today so <laughs> oh yes yeah. so cold weekend indoors not too it's, bad yeah i wouldn't complain about that right now um Anyway, yeah, sure. Dale, how are you doing? I'm really well, and I'm really happy to be back. It's uh, it's been it's been a fascinating year, so I'm looking forward to chatting to you guys, and I'm really excited about how much you've done. I've been following <laughs> yeah. the channel; it's really impressive. I mean, uh, yeah, we've we've we got a few under the belt now. I think we're 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 still incapable of doing what we do well, but we're getting there. And, uh, and we've got a couple of, couple of good ones under the belt. So thanks for noting. And just to quickly intro you again. So prior to this, you were at your previous company. That's where we sort of chatted with you the last time. If you want to hear that episode, it's a great one. Go have a listen. It's about a year back in the catalog. But right now, your role is the EMEA CTO of Field Advisory and Engineering at Databricks. Right. Can you tell us a little bit about Databricks, your role, what it is you do there? I'll, I'll cover the role really quickly and then I'll jump into who we are because that's uh, a really fun story. So I actually touched on it in the previous one because they, they, they were a company I was very familiar with. Um, so I've joined as the EMEA CTO. Uh, that's you know Europe, Middle East, and Africa. So hopefully at some point I will be visiting over that side of the world and, and you know, um, getting introducing sort of Databricks across, uh, but we're starting to bubble up over there. So, you know, my role ultimately is very client facing. We focus on uh, the sort of executives or major accounts and um, we help them sort of navigate the challenges of, you know, that whole data driven digital transformation. Um, and that can touch on things like navigating their data strategy, um, designing their data organization, figuring out how to find innovation uh, in their sector and transform their business. Um, and that, that's kind of a cool perspective because we also have clients that are disruptive and startups, you know, and some of them are scaling up and some of them are companies you know incredibly well, like, you know, Adobe Atlassian. Um, so, so we're driving commercial businesses as well as driving um, traditional businesses and and emerging businesses so it's a lot of fun because you get to see almost like a time in motion as companies grow but also as companies are forming 
Um, so, so basically, who are Databricks, right? So Databricks are like, I think we're in the top 10 fastest growing private companies and the private tech companies in the world. Um, and we're a data and AI company aiming to democratize data and AI to solve the world's greatest problems. And, you know, that sounds like a really kind of like cliche tag. Yes. <laughs> sort of tagline, but, 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 you know, I'm, I'm going to tell you why that's kind of real. It's, it's quite fascinating. We have about 7,000 uh, clients. Um, we're, a, we're what is categorized as a unicorn. So um, a unicorn is a business that's had a valuation greater than um, a billion. Um, dollars. So we've had clear on that. dollars. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. 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 Um, and so we've, we've had a really good sort of run. Um, we've got about 40% of our clients. So in the fortune 500, so like Condé Nast, you know, Comcast, H&M, anyone who listen to my previous podcast uh, with you guys. Um, a quick segue, one of our clients, is, you'll, you'll kind of get why in a second. So one of our clients, Regeneron, uh, is on a kind of mission to tap into the power of genomic data to bring new medicines to patients in need. Um, one of the use cases was actually looking at a drug for chronic liver disease, and they found the gene responsible for using this using machine learning. So, so in effect, like that, that, that sort of showcases okay, wow. some of the total addressable market of what, what Databricks is capable of. And we, we do this with something we call the Lake House platform. Mm. Uh, and Lake House is a kind of new category. So like if you think warehouse was a category, data warehousing, you know, data lakes were a category, like Gartner creates these categories. Other uh, groups create these categories. They kind of lean into it. This is one of those that's become endorsed. Um, and it's it's a it's a cool story as to how it comes about, but it's actually think of it as like a, a convergence story of of where data management plays and and a kind of evolution of database engines. Um, we're uh, headquartered in San Francisco. Um, the original sort of founders of Databricks are the original creators of Apache Spark. So some okay. of you might have been aware of that. So they invented that at UC Berkeley. Um, they've also invented a number of other open source frameworks uh, and projects, some in the Apache Foundation, some in the Linux Foundation. Uh, so, so one of the sort of big ones is Delta Lake. Uh, it's like a, um, the best way to describe it is like a sort of open data protocol that applies sort of acid transactionality across you know, files and folders. So instead of you needing a traditional proprietary, you know, database engine, you can actually apply it to an open data format like Parquet. Um, so without getting too technically in the weeds, they also look at things like, um, they've got a framework called MLflow. If you've ever heard of something like uh, Mike, uh, Michelangelo, which is the MLOps framework that um, Facebook have, this is like an open version of that. And it enables machine learning and data science uh, to be way more productive. So anyone who's thinking, hey, I'm a data scientist and I spend you know, 80% of my time just finding data. This is one of those accelerators that helps you to spend 80% of your time building models, experimenting and deploying them to production. So it's kind of what DevOps helped us to do in software engineering. This is what helps data scientists to achieve the same wow. kind of product productivity um right. yeah, yeah so before we, ca before of, we carry on, of I just stuff, have a sort right? of quick 
before we continue, I just want to have a quick question around around this concept of a lake house. It's it's a it's a new category. Uh, well, say re- I'll say relatively new category. I'm not sure how long it's been around, but it sounds it's new to me. And if we think about a lake house in the context of the categories that currently exist around this model, so we got data warehousing. We all know what that is, or should know what that is, and we know what data lakes are. They've been around a little while, but what is what is a lake house in in in, in sort of concept and technical terminology, right? Are we, well, well, I'll so, start so with concept. Paint a picture for us. Yeah. I'll start with concept, and then I'll I'll I'll, cu- I'll sort of cover it in terms of addressable market because I think that can be can be helpful. So, um, think of Lakehouse as like a convergence between two main movements in sort of analytics. So one is I want to look backwards, like business intelligence, to see like what my revenue was, you know, for the last week, month, you know, whatever. Uh, or I want to look at sort of historical. Um, you know, analytics and intelligence. Um, the other movement is I want to look forward. I want to be able to be more predictive. Now, in the in the tech stack, currently today, those are two totally different stacks. You know, one is built around a lake with data scientists. The other is built around a warehouse. And, you know, those are becoming increasingly modernized with, you know, different vendors that have put it, put it into cloud and things, but it's still a warehouse. You squint, it looks like, you know, 1988 Oracle's white paper, mm-hmm. you know? So, so, so while there's a lot of incremental innovation around that, you still have these, the separation and it's still very structured. Um, Lakehouse brings those two worlds together. And actually as a byproduct, there's a number of other worlds that sort of come in. So in terms of like addressable market, it's, it's a unified sort of architectural paradigm for machine learning and data science, for data processing and engineering. So that's everything from like ETLs to streaming and even you know, potentially software engineering. There's SQL analytics and business intelligence that you can do on that platform, but you're doing it on a broader spectrum of data. So not just highly structured star schemas and things like that, it kind of carries into other things. And then, you know, one of the things that's surfacing is more of a governance orchestration and sharing modality that actually is something that was missing on lakes and you know everyone's heard of the swamp this this is that ability to create schema enforcement and and give give lakes almost the same behavioral characteristics as where as databases provide um and that same kind of enforcement of schema the same kind of um you know, ability to create sort of indexes and things like that. So that, that, that's sort of what it does. Um, and, and it sits on your data's open format. So in effect, it's, it's giving you sort of massive performance at an optimized low cost price on open data. So the, the actual storage is open, which, you know, if you think about what the internet gave us with HTML and those sorts of things, you know, an open protocol on data allows us to build up the stack further. We can stop being stuck in this person's database or that group's database and those sort of things. So it, it kind of opens things up quite massively. And I, and I guess the AI aspect of that is transforming those swampy databases and getting it into that open format and sort of looking after the data in that way uh, to present it, to index it, to make it available, right? So if, if I use my stupid brain to think about this, you've got a million different data sources all coming into various lakes. The lake house is sitting there kind of uh, making that data accessible, right? Or making that data easily accessible in an open way. 
Well, the, this is where the protocol, so there's a number of open protocols in either in the Apache or Linux Foundation. Uh, so the one that, you know, Databricks leverages and is the largest contributor uh, of is called Delta. Um, and you can find it in the Linux Foundation. It's got a massive following. And in effect, what it does is it creates a kind of schema enforcement layer uh, and a sort of open protocol that, you know, it helps you to have that kind of acid transactionality, which gives you that kind of reliability you didn't get on lakes. It, it, it has performance improvements, which are solved through like indexing. So, you know, it does a lot of, like you said, sort of complex bloom filters and fast interactive queries. And, you know, it allows you to rewrite your data into an optimal format. Um, it gives you that governance characteristic, uh, which brings you that kind of grant oriented open sort of access controls. So similar behavior to tables, views, columns, rows that you would sort of know from warehouses. And then obviously on top of that, you get that sort of ability to introduce quality, which it's got this notion called expectations and that validates and enforces your schema, but it also inspects the characteristic of each of your like individual records um, to prevent bad data coming in from your downstream system. So it, it solves a bunch of things that, you know, we have, watched with pain and misery for many, many years. And for me, the, the, the real kind of advantage is we can start to look at more intelligent applications, more intelligent kind of areas of the stack. You can start to build more intelligent businesses on top of a layer. Um, and it's, so it gives you a kind of leap into the future in a in a place which is just very fragmented and siloed and where dale do you think that future is is going do you think five years from now what is databricks what are they achieving in comparison to what they're doing now so so, so databricks in itself are like they're a they're, they're making the transition from you know what is effectively referred to as an independent software vendor uh to more of a platform business and like the cloud providers, Azure, AWS, Google, you know, Alibaba, are like a control plane over your infrastructure to give you that kind of abundance and acceleration in the sort of infrastructure layer. This is a similar control plane, um, but it sits across your, like all your data. Like you can literally, and, and it, I'm not saying it's centralized, don't think of it like that way, because it can be um, deployed you can have many lake houses, right? Mm -hmm. And it, what it does is it creates a control plane that uh, it gives you that kind of portability between clouds. So it is multi-cloud. We sit on AWS, we sit on GCP, we sit on um, Azure, and we sit on uh, Alibaba Cloud. So it gives you that kind of portability, you know, orchestration between different clouds. So that kind of multi-cloud approach. Um, and then ultimately, where we sort of see it going in the future is that ability to build, you know, machine learning use cases, machine learning applications. Um, you're 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 speeding up, you know, what has effectively been a really old modality where you know analytics and transactional workloads have been separate for a really long time. You know, that that is based on scarcity of compute and storage back from sort of decades ago. 
in a cloud world where you've got that kind of abundance that changes right so yeah now what you're wanting to do is you're going okay well we're going to change the game like let's bring the great divide between these two groups together um and there's some interesting things that are surfacing like um you know the ability to share data um so you know delta in its sort of setup has um has a kind of feature called delta share and and it's almost like see it as a like an, like an api but too big data that has access control and things like that so you know one of the things that always amazes me especially when you get into the topics of things like sustainability is how data just gets copied and pasted all over the organization um to me this is something that stops a lot of the copy and paste and it allows us to focus on building high value use cases you know like the drug thing that i mentioned building you know more data centric applications um we can also focus on the the real problem um so you know uh, have I ever I, i'm not sure if i talked talked to you last time about complex adaptive systems and complexity versus um complicated no uh probably not no right. go ahead <laughs> all right so i'll use an analogy right so a car is complicated traffic is complex so a lot of people get that mixed up um you can build a car and you can repair it but you can't but sorry you have to manage traffic you know <laughs> so it, it it's two different ways of looking at things now in tech tech's man made so you know or woman made or person made um so the problem is that we've made tech probably more complicated than it needs to be and there was legitimate reasons for it some of those reasons have gone away so we need to kind of uncomplicate it so that we can focus on complexity um and you know you can achieve the full visibility of a complicated system but it's really hard to get that of a complex one uh and why complexity is such a fascinating area to me is because you know that's my heritage sure. like that's you know the 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 atoms and the molecules and those sort of things that I studied um you can see how that manifests in organizations and you know we ourselves are system of complex systems so in effect you know we have a management layer which is led by our brains and there's a lot of us in organizations uh and as you noticed sometimes we don't always agree sometimes it's hard to align that, that that's a much better problem to focus on than you know the noise of many different technologies that say they do the same thing but they don't yeah yeah okay and you touched on you touched on moving away from an isv saas product to a um sort of a platform with an ecosystem um and a bunch of partners living on all of the different clouds, right? Um, what were some of the complexities around that? Because, I mean, Databricks, I remember seeing it as an Azure service a while ago. You could pull in a Databricks instance into your into your tenant and you could start playing around with it. But now that seems to have changed, or is that still the same? So you still pull it into your Azure cloud, you still pull it into your GCP suite, or you pull it into your AWS tenant or whatever the case may be. But how has that changed technically underneath sort of to move from an ISV SaaS product into a, a platform. So, uh, you know, the, the dynamics are, are different between an ISV. So an ISV SaaS product, I mean, you know, Databricks has always been a, 
built on open standards and open source, but it, it, it focused very much on part of, you know, the data value chain. As it's expanded that data value chain and expanded the customer segments, you know, ultimately it's covering more ground. So, you know, it, it facilitates collection of data. It facilitates the, the kind of processing of data. It facilitates the, you know, the machine learning and the curation and, you know, the derivation of new data and then also the distribution. So, so it, it covers a far broader spectrum and, and the transition to a platform business is to create partnerships with other ISVs that would plug in. So you're not closed, you're not kind of blocked off. And ultimately a, a platform business is an enabling technology at the lowest common level. So like one could think of AWS, Google and GCP being the lowest common denominator for a platform business. If you look one level up, you want that, and that kind of helps you on the infrastructure side, but it also gives you a toolbox but full of things. Yeah. If you want to go one level up and you want to actually have more portability uh, and more control of your data, you know, Databricks can play the role of the control plane. And, you know, there's yeah. partnerships that would focus on the ingestion side, like companies like Fivetran. There's companies that would help you with the abstraction. So if you didn't want to bake everything into Databricks's sort of declarative pipelines, you could use something like DBT Labs which is a really cool way of, of sort of building, you know, SQL based declarative pipelines, which generalizes the skills from, you know, heavy engineers to more, you know, citizen engineers. Right. Right. Um, right. And you sort of building those tools that allow for those integrations to be done. really Exactly. Easy. And Delta. Okay. See, also my meat brain's getting it now. I'm getting it now. Exactly. It. Yeah. And Delta also facilitates that kind of bridge into, you know, tools like Power BI, tools like Tableau, Looker, yeah. you know, so, so, so there's a cluster of, of ISV partners that form around the platform business. But then also, you know, what you're trying to do is move up the stack to facilitate mm -hmm. the real challenge in data, which is how do I create a more direct relationship between the producers of the data and the consumers of the data? Yeah. Um, and reducing the marginal cost of production and distribution as you go. I get you. And, and it's all about the abstractions, right? So the complexity, as you mentioned, is the lower level stuff. Your engineers at Databricks are solving these things daily, I'm pretty sure. But us, companies, partners, um, independent people that may be able to utilize these tools need this easy mechanism to do it. And Databricks, Data Lake is that answer. Yeah. It sounds as though. Yeah. yeah so the Lake House gives you that kind of, that, that canvas to build and you know ultimately democratize your 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 data and ai and ultimately what you're doing is you're going okay i've now got this kind of goldilocks of all the different silos of uh, you know past uh things um i can look at building business capability applications so you know i can i can change the entire way i look at hr analytics you know, those are the boring stuff, um, but could be super intelligent, especially in a world where, you know, the great resignation is happening, right? Mm -hmm. um, so suddenly you get an unlock of great potential because you have access to that data and you can build use cases mm -hmm. in a more, you know, organizational sort of agile way. But you can also focus on the differentiated things that would set you apart, help you to be more competitive. 
it creates a much leaner infrastructure for you because it's not about copying and pasting data back and forth, back and forth. It's about accelerating more of a kind of digital value proposition. So like if you look at the unicorns and you look at the biggest tech companies in the world, the trillion dollar businesses, you know, they're, they have that ability to enter new markets, you know, look at, look at companies like, you know, Netflix, uh, it's probably a contentious one who were focused <laughs> on you know, content and suddenly they're doing podcasts and podcasts and content have a different accounting model. So Netflix had the ability to switch accounting models. And I mean, in a traditional business, changing your accounting structure, I mean, that is hard. That is really, it's like concreted into your, into your, because it's probably something heavy on like SAP or something like that. So like that change is far harder in a, in a more legacy based business. So, so this is like, yeah. see it as an unlock of, of, of trap value to be able to become gotcha. a more digital business. I got you. Um, so Databricks is a, is a unicorn for many reasons, not least of all, probably the problems that they, they've, they've sort of solved in their journey. And, and I would imagine that if you're, if you're talking about something like a lake house and, and multiple data lakes, even that are feeding into this thing, we, you're, you're sort of talking about areas where performance becomes highly critical, right? So, so it's one thing to be able to get access to this data and see this data but it's another thing to do that in a in any realistic usable time frame right so what sort of things what sort of challenges have been overcome i don't know how much detail you can go into around this right but there there's probably uh you're knocking on computational limits when we're talking about how this data can be accessed from such a wide array of different sources probably globally um located right well, number one, the data is piped into a common sort of format. So, so right. it has to, it has to move and it doesn't mean it has to be centralized, but it does have, it, you can't use the platform on, you know, existing database engines. Sure. It's got so, some sort of transformation, some so, sort of, yeah, yeah, exactly. Once the data is sort of in that transformed state. I mean, the founders of the company come from, you know, a, a lab at Ber UC Berkeley, where this is the stuff they were doing. And, you know, one of the things I've, I find quite entertaining is while I was painfully hitting my head against, you know, trying to build models that took 30 days, you know, where I could actually get on a boat and sail across the Atlantic and it still wasn't finished, trying to do these proteomic models, this team were actually looking at the, 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 the raw sort of problem. So they're, they're, they're kind of data scientists, sorry, um, they're both data scientists and computer scientists and their lab focused on dis distributed compute. And ultimately it led to the creation of, of Spark because what they were trying to do was figure out how do they make the compute engine on more open data, faster, better, cheaper. And, and they've continued that since they originally kind of pushed it live. Um, last year, there was a, a, a really cool sort of achievement where they broke the world record for price performance. Um, and you can go look at the, the benchmarking data on, um, it, I'll, I'll share a link with you. Um, but it, it's fascinating that they have that price performance sort of 
locked down and it's a continuous thing they're striving to so you know they've they've even kind of peeled apart the original spark engine and created a new kind of compute engine distributed compute engine called photon so there's a lot of continuous innovation happening mm. um and and you know as we plug up what that does is is it solves the kind of price performance for clients so it's cheaper better faster across you know lots of different data types and, and i'm not just talking about text i'm talking about like across the board like as data proliferates more um you start to see it kind of manifest in in in, in lots of different ways and you need something that can hit lot like you know a hammer that can hit lots of nails not like you know a different hammer for every for every you know type of nail you have so dale we, we i think spoken... i just lost that analogy completely yeah you kind of you kind of trail but we'll make it work i and i do that all the time um you've spoken a bit about the what and the why and the when i want to dive a bit more into the who right so you mentioned our databricks you've unicorn got the billion dollar evaluation top 10 fastest growing private companies what is the 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 scaling up and the hiring process like or i'm sure you're far above this as the uh the the cto but what is that process like if i'm a junior intermediate developer out there i'm looking to get into the data space um yeah what is the process like what skills do i need well you know databricks you know they're they're ultimately they're a platform business that builds a highly scalable product so then they're not going to want to scale their workforce to be to to sort of fight with the system integrators and that sort of thing like it's it's a very strong partnership and so if you've got to ask yourself the question like you know databricks is very accessible so there's a lot of academy based models like to if that are persona based so if i want to be a data engineer there are very accessible ways of learning how to become a databricks data engineer and ultimately you know it supports python it supports uh, Scala, it supports R, it supports uh, SQL. What we're seeing is, you know, Python and SQL being bubbling up to the top. R adoption is dropping. Um, you know, Scala, obviously, there's not yeah. a huge market for it. Um, there's other languages that, you know, you can work with. There's an opening up. So the Databricks has a notebook. So you learn the notebook um, experience, which is a bit like Jupyter Notebooks, just kind of so it's got that kind of iPython vibe. Um, but nowadays, with the open ecosystem, we're also building plugins so that if you want to use an IDE, you can do that. Um, so they're on the clouds. You can spin one up and learn how to use it. You can then focus on the data science persona, you know, and, and there's various degrees of what you can do with that. So you can go into, uh, it carries all the all the main libraries, so you get access to all of those things. Um, it's easier and more intuitive to use. It's creating a lot of productivity tools that take away a lot of the pain that a data scientist normally would go through. So, so you might choose to do that. So you can do that independently. Yeah. And we're seeing a lot of people starting to do that independently. We're seeing a lot of people doing it as part of um, STEM programs, so science, engineering, technology programs at university. Um, what we're also seeing is people joining like uh, software houses, system integrators, and you know, th- there's partnerships with us. 
and that unlocks sort of more training. So it's like gamified, you know, I get level one here, but if I join that company, I can get level two. It, it's, it's hard stuff in the beginning to get your head around because it's, you know, there's some differences to more of the traditional uh, coding modalities because more functional, more declarative. Um, but the uptake is growing massively and, you know, we're seeing a huge adoption of it. So it is a developer enabling platform, but a new type of developer enabling platform. And it's very accessible, even if you don't work in a big company or, or those sorts of things. Azure, AWS, Google, easy to, easy to kind of create that account. Databricks is in there. Most of those accounts, it's pay go. So, you know, you've, you've got environments to learn from. Um, right. so skilling up is, is not hard. And because a lot of companies are using Databricks because it unlocks a lot of value, because you're not only kind of doing the traditional workloads, you're doing the future things, seeing a lot of creative things start to emerge. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and internally, so to push you on this, so internally at Databricks, what is your sort of hiring process? What is the criteria of the individuals that work for you? Uh, at the, or at the company? So, so obviously we have a product engineering function um, that typically is Silicon Valley based, you know, teams in California, but we have a team in, in Amsterdam. We're building an R&D function in other places. Um, <clears throat> so that, that's kind of the, the machine that's, you know, getting evolving the product and the platform. Um, there's partner teams that are focused on plugging in, in the field engineering space, there's a hiring velocity because, you know, we, we need more solution architects. We need more kind of specialist product, um, you know, advocates. Um, so, so there's, there's always a, a, a general buzz to grow. Um, and then there's obviously we're, we're a technical platform so there's sales teams and commercial teams that are you know driving engagement um looking for new use cases creating partnerships um so so there's a a, a large spectrum right. of different functions and the, there's a huge um list of available roles um and because of covid because of remote working we we do see that there is there are some coverages in areas where we don't even have offices. So like we, we, cause, cause our clients are not necessarily in areas where we have offices. So like it's, it's not that it's fixed to a region anymore because that's no longer a thing. Um, so hiring, hiring is fascinating, but very different from what I'm used to where it's more of a, an engine room. This, th there is a, top-notch kind of criticality we're looking for really you know talented people but at the same time you know we're also looking for diversity we're also looking to grow um you know an incredible yeah, culture sure. um yeah. and if you're naturally curious you want that pace because the pace is something else um, and you want that variety of work. You want that kind of momentum of building ahead of things. Um, there's a huge amount of opportunity at this business. Awesome.
Now, Dale, you're you're a scientist by, at heart, and I can definitely see how how Databricks is a company that attracts you because it in itself is a complex system that is interesting and 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 full of opportunity for you to scratch that scientist itch, right? But what specifically do you do you see uh, daily? What's sort of like your 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 daily thing that you do that scratches that scientist itch for you in, 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 in your work? So our use cases very much fit into that. So like the things we work on with clients and the spectrum of that work. So you see things from, you know, how to heat map an emergency room in a hospital to work out how to route people to other hospitals in real time. I, I mean, that's incredible. You see things like um, how to look at profile in real time, um, the engines of, you know, the Rolls-Royce engines on Boeing flights and being able to tell, you know, the maintenance team when that plane lands, what needs to happen and things like that. So, so the spectrum that you get to work across of problems and use cases, it goes from you know, I just want to know what my revenue is to I'm actually figuring out how to find the particular gene in a genome to uh, solve cancer, you know. So it's it, yeah. it, it's that spectrum that's that satisfies the itch. My role is very chatting to the, the senior execs. And so the second part that satisfies the itch is because you're removing a lot of the complicatedness from the technology layer that allows you to work and enjoy helping them to figure out the complexity of changing their business, changing their operating model. Um, and disruption is coming in all layers to different businesses. So like if you're, if you're a dealer franchise, for example, in the automotive industry, where Tesla has just shown the world that you don't need a dealership, because you know the automotive companies are just doing it themselves then you need to rethink what is my future business what do i need to be what do i need to do um in a bit you know my favorite analogy is you got you got blockbuster who sorry not blockbuster kodak blockbuster is an even more funny one because then they nearly bought netflix and then they didn't um <laughs> There's actually a series coming out about that where, you know, it's called The Last Blockbuster on Netflix. It's going to be hilarious. That's meta. Um, <laughs> um, Gosh, you only see where that's going to end. But, but the Kodak yeah. Fujifilm thing. So a lot of people know Kodak and they know how Kodak fell apart. But Fujifilm pivoted. They looked and saw they had capabilities that fed into other industry sectors. So if you look at Fujifilm today, they play a role in the cosmetic sector because they had stuff that operated there. If you look at... You know, I've seen I've seen some fascinating things around what Intel's doing. So, you know, they're one of the big showcases of the innovator's dilemma uh, from Clayton Christensen's book, where they were able to find innovation before you know disruption hit them. This time around, though, with you know a lot of the silicon chips and those sort of things happening, um, they're taking and what I've seen happening is the service that they offer for testing the performance of cloud platforms. Now that, that's fascinating because wow. that's something they would have done internally. They're, they're, they're kind of switching that to look externally. That's not, that's not, that, those are just examples of how companies can redirect. Um, and that becomes the, the itch scratch because you're, 
you're almost looking at the anatomy of businesses and starting to work out how to evolve them into something that fits in the in the more digital world um, and can compete against you know some of the new emerging more digital native companies while at the same time you're working with the digital native companies to figure out you know how do they find distribution in order to further disrupt so it's just it's lots of fun because you you you've got this complex interplay and and then you have entire industry ecosystems where you know like imagine the problem of trying to sort of implement you know esg metrics so environmental social governance metrics across every company in the world you know imagine trying to implement gdpr across all companies in europe and you know being able to give people the right to be forgotten but in a very streamlined way so there's this fascinating problems like that that you get mm. to help executives figure out and then sort of roll that down to the team so there's a huge amount of education of getting away from the memes of the past where we used to have I mean, you used to need a big warehouse in the corner on a big server to, you know, what we need to solve today, um, which is let's let's actually address climate change. Let's address, you know, hunger. Let's go and address awesome. some of these big challenges. But Dale, you're, you're clearly a very passionate, um, well-informed, opinionated, successful individual that's accomplished a lot. And let's face it, your biggest accomplishment is being on this show twice. Um, so as a result, uh, at least an external guest, um, being on the show twice, which means we didn't do too much of a bad job the first time. Um, as a result, we kind of did, a an, an exercise, not myself and, and guy, but the wonderful people that actually make the show happen. And we got some questions based off of our first conversation. So it's a very different segment that we haven't coined a term for yet basically just a glorified q a but built off of the first conversation so we're quite excited about that i don't know guy if you want to take it away with we got quite a few yeah, i don't yeah. think we'll get through all of them but uh yeah yeah and there's a couple there's a couple in here that i think we'll, we'll probably skip over just for the the uh, sake of time and and I'll, we'll probably just cherry pick the the ones that i find will be most interesting in you too Hardy. so feel free to grab the next one but i'll start with the first one if you don't mind sh- answering these Dale, let me first Not ask you uh, okay so feel, feel comfortable feeling uncomfortable all right so here's a here's a softball one uh could you share a couple of your thoughts on how you would explain to a small business owner who's not thinking in terms of data insights or analytics or using their data in any sort of real tangible way to improve how they can extract that value from their data let's say i don't know um a mom and pop laundromat chain for example well a mom and pop laundromat probably needs to just get the basics right to start with okay and like the the thing that i find fascinating is as businesses grow in a kind of traditional way they start to add humans um to do jobs that maybe they don't need to do straight away they they it's it's kind of something that they can handle further on so something that i've always noticed around um you know, SaaS businesses is how they want to suppress how much cash they spend in the beginning as they sort of grow. When you're a mom and pop shop, 
you know, you already have some sunk costs. So you're trying to save cash wherever you can. And it's a very competitive space because of things like um, price in the area, that sort of thing. So what I would be suggesting to them is, you know, get the basic hygiene of your data in a really clever way as soon as you can, you know, and it's not a lot. So you pay a hell of a lot less than you would if you just bought a bunch of random applications. Um, what I would also be looking at is a sort of more outside in. So let's look at alternative data around my area. Let's see how I can be competitive without having to buy an entire, you know, um, survey register from some you know, research company, you know, like there is a lot of free data out there. And, you know, there's a lot of very interesting kind of trends you could pick up that way. Not only are you setting up your mom and pop shop, you also could be creating an ancillary data, you know, provider business, you know, of that demographic area. Like there's some fascinating things I saw during the pandemic of, you know, like we had a thing in the UK where we called it the egg run in the start of the pandemic where, you know, nobody could find eggs because it was just <laughs> so you were you were looking on social media to see who had found eggs and where they found them and everyone just clustered there. Like it, it's crazy stuff that's that right. starts to bubble up um, and, you know, latching on to some alternative data, looking at how to differentiate yourself in a, you know, what is effectively a, a, a noisy kind of maybe potentially competitive market. Mm. It, it changes the value proposition, maybe how you could lean into engine marketing. So there's a big talk about sort of mm. virality and things, you know, Instagram are the poster child of this. If a company could be bought for a billion dollars and only have 13 employees and 30 million users, something that they did around the engine part of marketing is incredible. So, you know, how would we take that thinking and apply it to a mom and pop shop? That would be a fascinating, fun thing right. to, awesome. to experiment with. Okay. Great answer. Very, yeah, a lot of thought provoking things there. Uh, the next question is thinking purely from a correlation standpoint in your time looking at data sets and stuff like that. Have you found any interesting similarities between COVID waves and other data? Um, I mean, the obvious is, you know, uh, social media and content consuming skyrocketed when, uh, you know, everyone was forced to stay at home and stuff like that. Is there anything else that, like, like you mentioned, kind of the egg run there? Is there any other things that kind of popped up on your radar? So, so COVID, COVID was like a very strange um, phenomenon because you could link and correlate sort of high spikes and things, weird things like, you know, mental health. So I would, I would say that the, somebody doing a deep dive into, you know, how waves of COVID lockdowns and the corresponding mental health and, you know, what would, what would a better result be? Cause I, I hope it's not the, you know, the next pandemic's not on the way. But there's some strange stuff going on in the world today. Um, so you never know. So I would love it if the world had a plan for how to deal with the mental health sort of issues. Um, 
I think there's also some very fascinating things if you correlate the great resignation to COVID and how one resulted in the other. And potentially it's that kind of, I've spent all this time reflecting because now I'm in my home and you know, I'm spending more time with my family and I hate my job. You know, I, that wasn't a personal thing. I, I love what I do, as you can hear. <laughs> But there are a lot of people that hated what they did and it caused mm. a reflective period. So it's weird. Like the way I think about it is what are the positive aspects of COVID and what are the, what are the things that we can learn from COVID um, going forward in a more social context and in a more kind of human context? I think those are the most fascinating correlations and potentially causations that would be brilliant to mine. Awesome. Yeah. Okay, my turn. So I'm going to sort of paraphrase the question here. I'm not going to read it verbatim. But let's say an organization is starting their, their um, journey into data science and they've got a wealth of data and they've got all of the stuff and, and they want somebody to be able to uh, analyze that data, put it together for them, use that data in valuable ways. Should they? Well, the first part of the question, should they be hiring their data scientists or should they be outsourcing that work? And if they should be hiring for that, what sort of role should they be hiring should they be hiring a senior with six years of experience or should they be hiring a couple of juniors or a couple of intermediates with a combined experience of like 10 years and and getting it right that way or yeah that's the question should so, okay, let's start with the first part should they be hiring or should they be using an outsource provider so if if you're if you're starting out your your, your brand new company this is this is one of those roles that you want to grow with your company. So hiring, I mean, unless one of your founders is a, is a seasoned data scientist, hiring one of those would be very expensive. So it would, it would, it would create huge problems for your, 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 your current cash flow. So probably not the best plan. Outsourcing, you've got to ask, am I going to get the value and the return? Um, because ultimately you're, you're, providing that thinking it's too early for outsourcing i believe it is a very good opportunity for bringing in interns and growing them within the business because in the beginning you're you're not going to have tons of data your use cases are going to be fairly rudimentary um, to start with and you know a lot of people start with the hardest thing and forget that actually it's kind of destination versus journey um, if you figure out the hops, you know, to ultimate, to your ultimate prize and, and have somebody learn that, you know, getting advisors is a clever way. So finding somebody who could sit on your board that would advise that person, you know, um, depending on your, you know, your value proposition as a business, like you, you might actually find people put their hands up. For example, if, if you're curing cancer, <laughs> lots of people put their hands up. Um, and, and on that thread, you know, affiliation to universities is always helpful. So there are ways to do it without having to, you know, blow your costs. Now, I'm saying this in the capacity of having advised startups that are sort of entering. Having a great set of tools that makes that person's life a lot simpler and easier, that are intuitive to use, that take away a lot of the headache that traditional data scientists would have had, you know, so a lot of the operational overhead. 
if you have something that allows them to focus on you know having clever ways of preparing their data having clever ways of you know building life models even using things like auto ml frameworks that help to create recommendations around what model to use you'll find that you grow a team and there'll be a point in time where you might grow to a point where you need somebody senior but at that point you're probably getting like a lot more money um, another very interesting way of thinking about this is the rise of, you know, like Kaggle and these types of platforms out there that are like offer prizes for solving really meaty machine learning problems. Um, and a lot of seasoned data scientists would go to those platforms almost to earn their chops to almost have that kind of stand out from the crowd brand recognition. So creativity around what you do um, and just recognizing the fact that you don't have to start with the most complicated bit. That's probably the way I advise and go about it. Growth, different scale, different. Okay. And yeah, let me ask the last the last question. Yeah, thanks to our team for putting this together and any listeners that did submit these questions. Uh, my favorite is any upcoming trends that you have identified or you see coming to into the market based on some of the data that you've seen? Biotech, anything like that? Um, so, so specifically in... In the data space, we're seeing a, a rise from a lot of companies in streaming use cases or fast data use cases, mm. which is quite cool. Um, one one could argue it's it's more the low latency, you know, space rather than the specifically leaning into streaming. Um, that that that's been rising, um, which means you know things like when I swipe my credit card at a gas pump and it immediately tells me that there's a fraudulent or checks for fraud you know that, that's a really value-led thing that a bank could offer um and so, so so those are starting to sort of bubble up to the top those trends are are, are hard to ignore um what we're also which means that the maturity is starting to grow because you know companies are getting in command of their data um in terms of more above the stack, there's a lot of, you know, rethinking of semantics and knowledge graphs and kind of connecting us closer, um, which opens up the opportunities for these incredible applications that could, you know, create new businesses. Um, and, and I think watching how that plays out is going to be truly fascinating. Like, you always find, you know, once you get past a, a sort of huge constraint, weird things start to happen. And you correlate that with other things happening in parallel, like 5G. And, you know, um, I, I, I reckon that there's some there's going to be some fascinating new business models emerge. Um, don't even get me started on the sort of what's happening in crypto, because that'll there's a whole lot of weird stuff about, there, too. I don't want to talk about crypto. <laughs> I am. Um... Yeah, let's not go there. Anyway, Dale, thank you so much. We've come to the end of the time we have for today, but I just want to say thanks very much for for joining us again. And of course, as you, you know, next time we'll talk about something in in, in more depth. I suppose maybe it's uh, whether or not um, 
you know, COVID escape from Wuhan. Let's not um, let's not um, rule that out as a discussion point. But um, yeah, thank you very much. This has been the Agile CTO. Dale, thank you so much for your time. It's been great having you again. And next time, really looking forward to the conversation. Brilliant. And thank you for hosting me. It's been awesome to see you guys again. It's been been a lot going on. So it's really we'll good to We'll see you in 2023 you. for the, the next round. <laughs> oh, that, that, yeah. We'll have to cover some weird ground then. We'll just have to go yeah. abstract. We'll just talk about the science of it, right? We'll get down to the physics of that. <laughs> We can we can start about uh, talk about like self management and you know decentralized autonomous organizations or something completely witchcraft. Awesome, looking forward to it. Take it easy, Dale. Thanks very much. Brilliant. Thank you very much. At Hayfully Software, we build dev teams that deliver and fix those that don't. Dev teams fail to deliver all the time for countless reasons from lack of skills to barriers and culture, from politics to process, from silos to egos. Whatever the reason, it's time they deliver. This is why we exist. From enterprise to startups, we craft high-performance dev teams focused on end-to-end delivery. Visit Hapley Software at OutsourceHS.com to learn more. You've been listening to the Agile CTO. To ensure that you never miss an episode, Subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening with Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to leave a quick rating of the show. Simply tap the number of stars you think the podcast deserves. Until next time.